Tēnā koutou nō mai haere mai, welcome to Q&A. I'm Jessica Much Mackay in for Jack Tame this week. Today on the ground in Ukraine, we talk to a Kiwi on a mission to save lives. We can't just pick people up with their thumbs out on the roads in you know, the south and east of Ukraine. And, and I say that somewhat unfortunately because you know we've had to leave people behind. Then will the new disability ministry have the power and influence to make things better? And an exclusive new reporter suggested a completely new direction in the war on methamphetamine. There's brief, you know, hinatori, there's brief moments where you're feeling so bad that you want change, and change isn't available. We're now six months into the Russian invasion, and this week the Ukrainian army has officially launched a major counteroffensive. It's trying to win back lost territory. But the war on Ukraine is taking a terrible toll on ordinary people caught up in the fighting. Thousands are believed to have been killed. Tenby Powell is a former soldier and also did a stint as the mayor of Tauranga. He traded in a comfortable life to try and help. He runs a Kiwi charity called Kiwi Care to try and get humanitarian aid in and vulnerable people out. Tenby Powell has spent most of the last two months on the ground and spoke to us last night from the Polish capital, Warsaw. I started by asking him about the most, hu most recent humanitarian shipment that had just come in. Yeah, look, that was extraordinary. So these two buses arrived from the UK, from Scotland uh, particularly, uh, just an incredible bunch of very down-to-earth, salt-of-the-earth people, um, full of everything you can think of, from uh, children's toys uh, through to uh, products, sanitary products for women, uh, food in the form of you know, canned food. Look, you name it. It was just extraordinary. And, you know, these buses can, as you know, they're huge. So they were loaded up not only in the cargo areas, but also all the seats inside were loaded up. And the question, of course, about why buses are not trucks, well, the reason is that they're backloading about 96 uh, Ukrainian refugees back to the UK on the return trip. So what will you be doing all of those toys and products and food now? What's the plan over the next... 24, 48 hours? Well, it's, it's today, actually. The plan is to load the vans up that we've got, uh, get all the documentation sorted for the various border crossings that we'll be going through, um, which is a, a really, you know, it's, it needs to be accurate. And then off we go to various locations. Um, Kiwi Care particularly is going to a hospital in the western part of Ukraine, uh, a refugee camp and possibly an orphanage, and then heading up to uh, probably Kiev to a hospital there, and then heading down to the southeast for um, support for evacuations. So, so we'll be well away for 10 to 12 days. And as well as distributing goods, you're also helping to ferry people across the border. You're in Warsaw at the moment. So is that what you're doing, getting people in and out? Well, no, I'm here because I was aware this very large shipment of humanitarian aid from the UK was coming in. Um, yeah, look, we, we do... We, it's the, the evacuation process is um, can be a bit ad hoc on the one hand, but in terms of movement of people across the border. Obviously, all the documentation has to be pre-approved. We can't just pick people up with their thumbs out on the roads in you know, the south and east of Ukraine. And, and I say that somewhat unfortunately because, you know, we've had to leave people behind and I often think about those people that we have left behind. But the documentation criteria 
as you can imagine, is very exacting for refugees to come into, um, you know, another country. While they can, under the circumstances of this war, literally flow in, we need to be very careful as um, as aid agencies about who we take and the circumstances there, under which they arrive. Are there any people that stick with you that that you remember as having to leave behind? Yeah, um, well, there is one woman. Um, as we drove out of Mikhailov, you may recall that I brought uh, an 80-year-old woman out who was very publicised because um, this was a New Zealand family. Her family were New Zealanders. Um, and, uh, you know, I remember as we drove out of her apartment enclave, there was a, a woman, she would have been 75, maybe thereabouts, with tears rolling down her cheek. Clearly, she wanted to come. We couldn't take her. Obviously, we didn't have any documentation. We didn't know her. And I often think about her. And I know that that particular area, since we were there, uh, is under huge duress with um, constant artillery fire. And the damage that was there when we saw it was horrific. So I can't imagine what it is. I haven't been back to that particular place in, in Mikhailov since, but um, uninhabitable, really. When you talk about stories like that, what is it that draws people like you and also people like Corporal Dominic Avalon to step up and help out in Ukraine? What is it that calls you to be there on the ground? Well, look, for me personally, um, it, it was about, you know, I think a, a mix of things that came together. I have a, you know, a professional background and a very broad skill set in the military and a business and in business at senior level. I worked on government boards, served, for example, on APEC or the ABAC, the APEC Business Advisory Council. So I'm comfortable in those environments that are dynamic and that in this case are, you know, um, a little bit uncomfortable, if that makes sense. Um, I think that, you know, this is, for me, um, and I think for most of the world, this war is not going away in a hurry. I think we'll still be here in at least one, possibly two years. And, you know, I think the, the consequences, the potential for it to alter world order uh, through, in some respects, country realliances to a degree, but more so the economic impact is phenomenal. And we've already seen evidence of the, the immense economic impact it's having with stifled growth, with uh, inflation. Um, and we know every time somebody wonders in New Zealand why the petrol pump prices are so expensive and why food is going up, um, a lot of it can be traced back to this, this, this war here in the Ukraine. I mean, Ukraine, for example, produces 30% of the world's sunflower oil. Well, you can imagine they, under the circumstances they're trying to, to harvest these crops right now, many of which are not being shipped, um, is, is extraordinary. Because the message for people from government sitting in Wellington is don't go to Ukraine, we can't help you when you're there. Especially for people like Dominic Abelin who are on the ground and, and fighting and perhaps haven't been in that war zone situation in that combat before. Do you hear that message? Do you feel like you're not listening to the rules? Um, sorry, do I, not, do I feel I'm not listening to the rules? Yeah, and to other New Zealanders uh, well, who are in Ukraine as well doing their bit. Well, look, I can't talk about other New Zealanders, um, but I don't work for the government. I'm not involved in combat operations. I'm involved in humanitarian aid and civilian evacuations. So, you know, I was... We all were very surprised at the Prime Minister's statement uh, uh, in respect of, of, uh, of Dominic. 
Um, and, it, you know, surprises for a number of reasons, really. Um, one is that we've sent, you know, 120 of our finest to the UK to train Ukrainian regiments. And as a consequence of that training, uh, knowing what they're going to go through, they will lift significantly in terms of their professional skills. So I find it a little bit, you know, odd that on the one hand we're doing that, but on the other, the Prime Minister is saying, well, you're on your own in Ukraine, New Zealanders, even though you may be just helping with humanitarian aid, you may be just helping with evacuations, and you're not involved in, in combat operations. So I find that very, uh, very strange, as we all did, and confusing, to be honest. Why is it confusing? What, what was it about her comments that surprised you? Well, the fact that we are decisively engaged in this war. We have trained, uh, other than in actual combat operations, we have sent um, our artillery members of the um, artillery uh, unit to train on the 105 howitzers. And now we've sent 120 instructors. We talk about them being soldiers, but clearly they're instructors with rank who are going to train Ukrainian regiments in some form in the UK. This is very open. So we have, as New Zealand, I think, or the government has certainly made a call to say, this is what we're going to do. We have drawn a line in the sand. We are going to support the Ukrainians in this um, illegal occupation, this illegal war, and this, uh, the attempts to take over, particularly the, the wider Donbass area. So we're there. We are, we, we've made a call. That's, this is the side we're on. Uh, it seems then odd that for those New Zealanders that want to go and help in some way, uh, for the government to say, well, you're on your own entirely. Um, we're just confused by that. The Prime Minister also mentioned that the body of Dominic Abelin may not be able to come home. What did you make of those comments? Well, look, I'm not in a position to talk about Dominic. I am in touch with his family fairly regularly, and our heart goes out to the Ablin family for what happened. Um, you know, and again, I can't talk about why, what Dominic's motivations are, or any of the other New Zealanders or Australians or other nationalities, of which there are many. I mean, as you know, uh, President um, Vladimir Zelensky called for soldiers to come and fight under the International Legion as part of Ukraine, and that's what many, many hundreds have come and done here in, in Ukraine. Um, but I can't comment on, you know, his motivations or any of them. What's the combat like on the ground in Ukraine? Can you talk to us about that broadly? What are some of these Kiwis that have gone over fighting and, and what are you dealing with when you're trying to get aid in? Um, in the, look, the vast majority today of Ukraine is what I would class as um, benign uh, with caution, you know, and I'm talking about Kiev and uh, particularly any, any city or area west of Kiev. Once you get to Dnipro and down towards the river, uh, where a lot of that action is happening, even on the western side of the river, you know, it can be really, uh, very challenging. As I said, you know, Mykolaiv, Kyrgyzstan, uh, places like that are still getting, um, you know, hit with artillery strikes regularly. And those are the areas that, you know, we feel we need to be down there to evacuate people that need to come out. And it's really important to understand that this is their home. As horrific as it might sound to be living amongst indirect fire that constantly comes in, many of these people know nothing else. They don't actually know a lot of Ukraine, let alone being transported halfway around the world to Australia or New Zealand. And so they're, they're you know, they want to stay. And sometimes it takes a bit of convincing to get people to leave, Do even though their feel... family are desperate for them to come out. 
Do you feel unsafe? I mean, you've got a, a military background, you're a former soldier. Do you feel uncomfortable in these situations or is that a silly question? Is it, of course you do. Yeah, of course we do. We all do. Um, you know, there are, there are New Zealanders that are living there constantly. We are, you know, we're coming and going. Uh, but they are there constantly and they are doing the most extraordinary work under very, very dangerous circumstances, to be honest. Um, but yes, of course, um, there's, there's nothing comfortable, um, you know, when you, you, you hear or see artillery firing. Uh, in the distance and, you know, you don't know where it's going to land. When the sirens go off at night, you don't know what those sirens are indicating, whether it's a missile strike or... So, yeah, it is uncomfortable. Hence, um, you know, the people that we're looking for to come and assist as volunteers with Kiwi Care need to be comfortable in what is sometimes and often in those areas, a very uncomfortable environment. Is it responsible for you, though, to bring in these Kiwis? Yes, they have experience, but you are asking them to come and operate in a war zone against the official wishes of the government. Do you feel comfortable asking people for help? Sorry, firstly, I think the official view of the government is about combat operations, unless I've misunderstood something entirely. And nobody that, you know, that I'm asking to come in uh, is, is going to be involved in that at all. Kiwi Care is not involved in combat operations under any circumstances. Um, but yes, you raise a very good point. Um, are we putting people in harm's way, potentially? Um, and yet this is a, you know, it's a decision that, um, you know, many New Zealanders, I, I, I'm drowning in applications. Um, you know, so to speak. And look, people will come anyway. There's um, many of the volunteers here are entirely unqualified to be here, and yet they're doing incredibly good work. I mean, we're unarmed, so there's nothing that we can do if something happens anyway. There's no practical way of defending oneself other than, you know, turning tail towards the west and driving out as fast as you can. And that has happened. I mean, it happened, it's happened to all the groups that are operating down there on occasion. Um, but at the same time, the people that are volunteering uh, now are those who, in terms of their, their wanting to come and volunteer with KiwiCare, do have the most extraordinary qualifications. And what happened with the, the Facebook post that I put out was really that I was getting applications constantly from people and phone calls and messages. And so I decided to sort of, I think, um, you know, quantify it, if you will, or clarify it a bit more so in terms of the environment and what we need. And as I said, you know, this is not the place to find yourself. There are a lot of people here trying to do that. Uh, it is definitely not the place to find yourself for all sorts of reasons, none the least of which. We're here to help Ukrainians. We shouldn't, you know, have volunteers here that who themselves need help. What about soldiers? Do you think that the New Zealand government should be sending in troops? Well, look, again, I can't comment on that. I think it's very important to understand that we, New Zealand, are not at war with Russia. Yes, we're training the Ukraine, but there's no declaration of war. And the minute that we cross that borderline, uh, as any you know country that's not at war with Russia, including all the NATO countries here, everything changes. And so while giving support to the Ukrainian military, as we are in New Zealand, as many are, uh, is a very different uh, nature of support than it is to actually cross the line into the border carrying arms. Just finally, I want to ask you about your plans. Winter is coming in Ukraine. It's going to be a tough few months. What are you thinking about doing? How long have you got in you before you come back to New Zealand for a bit of R&R? &R? <sighs> 
well, look, the Poles and the Ukrainians all have that same winter is coming. It's I think it starts in midsummer, and they keep saying it because when it arrives and the seasons, the, the seasonal change now is is quite pronounced. Um, I've I started with a view that I think we needed to establish Kiwi Care for a year. I've got a very firm view now that we need to be here for two years, and, and to do that we need strategic funding partners. And I mean, the New Zealanders have been so incredibly generous, uh, Jess, with this give a little page that we've got going on Kiwi Care. Just extraordinary. We're up, I think we're over eighty thousand dollars now in a few weeks. Um, and I think this goes to show how New Zealanders feel about the plight of the Ukrainians under this illegal occupation. However, to operate this uh, entity, this humanitarian aid entity for two years is going to need strategic partners. And I'm reaching out to corporates and what have you now for exactly that reason. So I think the answer to your question is we need to be here for two years. Um, I do have to come back um, uh, sooner rather than later, actually. My mother actually had a fall, um, and she's sort of fractured, a hairline fractured her pelvis, so I just feel at 93, uh, my responsibility is to my family as well back there. And we will keep the vans running while I'm not here. And then, um, you know, I think, but re-establishing it when I get back um, with the headquarters that I've talked about akin to a forward operating base somewhere in Ukraine to be determined is going to be... Um, I think the real firm base to have a, a New Zealand footprint that will last for the duration. That was Tembi Powell speaking there. His humanitarian organisation is Kiwi Care. Care is spelt K-A-R-E. Coming up after the break, giving meth addicts a hit, could that help win the war on drugs? Welcome back. When we think about drug addiction, it can be easy to forget the real people behind the statistics. Trisha Walsh is someone who struggled more than most with addiction. She shared her story with Fina Owen. It was a real scary childhood. It was, you know, I was raised on fear. At the small settlement of Teneroto, an hour out of Gisborne, social worker Trisha Walsh is telling us what led to her methamphetamine addiction sexually abused, I was beaten. Um, as children, we would hide, listening to others in our family being beaten. I left school, I went, was under the bridges in town. Stayed some nights at the, because um, I, I hung out with older cousins who, you know, were four or five years older than me. We were already hanging out with the mob and Sniffing solvents? Sniffing solvents. Trisha had her first baby at 15. By 19, she was a mum of three. I sold cannabis to give my children, you know, the life and the opportunities that I wouldn't have been able to give them on the benefit. But that led to several prison lags. I'd been in prison for two years, got out, and methamphetamine had taken quite a strong hold of this community. I became a target because they knew they could either sell it to me, you know, so that I, you know, it was, it, it was all around that. It was if she's addicted, then we've got, that's another market for us. Man, I loved it. You know, hook, line and sinker. I loved the energy it gave me. 
And I had a motto back then, you know, because coming down is really bad. So, you know, we would say things like, um, you know, the only way to beat not coming down is, is to stay up. And, you know, for two years, which was a relatively small time, uh, I spent most of that time fried out of my brains. You're pretty far down towards the depths of hell before you realise, oh my goodness, what, you know? And then, you know, you start trying to claw things back and it's normally too late by then, you know, the kids are going, you know, don't ask for us now or don't come searching for us now when we were there. Watching you. And you pushed us away. You chose that over us. There were more stretches in prison. I did that long lag, so four years, eight months. Got out and my kids had all left home. And I went back to meth. There was no life after using meth. If you used it, you died using it. And that's kind of where I was at. I was waiting to die. Um, and the doctors, it wasn't talked about. So in those really dark days when you were using, what would have helped you? You know, there were a lot of times when I wanted to give up, but there wasn't anything available right there in that moment. And I think we're facing... You wanted to stop using meth? I wanted to stop using meth. Um, and there's brief, you know, hinatori, there's brief moments where you're feeling so bad that you want change, and change isn't available. You know, there's waiting lists. Um, where can I go? Where can I go that doesn't cost thousands of dollars? Because it's an illness. It's an, an illness of the mind and it becomes an illness of, of wairua. Eventually, Trisha's son told her she couldn't see her mokopuna unless she cleaned up. Uh, I moved over to the other side of town, four kilometres. I cut everyone off. I only allowed my son, my, my children and my mokopuna into my world. Um, I turned to exercise. There were setbacks, but she got clean and enrolled at Wananga, completing a Bachelor of Social Work and has now enrolled in a Masters. They talk about whānau uh, transformation through education and it did transform our, our whānau. You know, we're not, the drug, we're not that drug family now. You know, we're known for other things. <laughs> and our mokopuna deserve to have a life free of meth, free of violence, free of fear. And that's a point that I'd like to get across to, to New Zealanders. Trisha Walsh is now a board member on the Drug Foundation, a group that along with the Helen Clark Foundation has released a new report this morning on combating meth addiction. Among other things, they want to see meth addicts given alternative substances or even in some cases a small supply of meth and a safe place to use it. And I'm joined this morning by the lead researcher of the report, Philippa Yazbek. Morena, and thank you very much for being with me this morning. Morena. I want to start off by asking you about this idea. Why creating a safe space and a small amount of meth for people? Why does that bring people off the black market and why is that such a good thing? 
Well, we've based this on the experience in Switzerland um, with heroin substitution. Um, in New Zealand we do something similar with opiates where we give people methadone but in, in Switzerland they had a very big problem with people injecting heroin and using it very publicly in um, parks and open places outside their parliament and so they decided they needed to do something about it. They had skyrocketing rates of HIV AIDS at the time as well amongst that, that community. And so they offered people um, heroin as a trial. Um, they could come in every day and, and take heroin under supervision. And their overdose rate plummeted. Nobody using the safe supply died from that. And what they found is that very soon people's consumption stabilised. They weren't spending their days uh, looking for the next fix, committing petty crimes, stealing, that kind of thing to, to fund their, their um, habit. And so these people were able to build a more stable life. Many of them transitioned from that into abstinence or they switched to methadone and they were re able to re-engage with employment. They rebuilt their connections with friends and family and they've had really good outcomes. And we think we need to change our paradigm on meth and try a similar approach, but that's not the only thing we're proposing. I do want to talk about it a little bit and then we can talk about some of those other things, but why, what would it do to the crime rate? And Because and, for a lot of people perhaps watching this, that, that is how they'll be affected by meth. What, so what would it do to the crime rate? What has your report found? Um, there's a large amount of evidence that people who do use methamphetamine regularly commit all kinds of small crimes to feed that. So they're going out, they're breaking into cars, um, they are running all kinds of small scams. They're washing lights at the, uh, washing um, car windows at the traffic lights, that sort of thing. Um, and they're also uh, people who are forced into sex work to try and pay for their use. Methamphetamine is incredibly expensive in New Zealand. And we're hoping to be able to enable people to disengage from that black market. And also from all the people they're involved with in that uh, we know that uh, people who deal methamphetamine often push it on people. They offer all kinds of uh, freebies and buy one, get one free kind of offers to get people involved and hooked. And the minute you stop trying to use, they also keep pestering you and offering you more. So it can be really hard to disengage from that. Because some people will be sitting at home saying, surely a safe level of methamphetamine use is zero. Why would we be even entertaining the idea? What do you say to those people? Um, obviously a safe level is, is not using any, um, any methamphetamine, but methamphetamine is also a prescription drug. In other parts of the world it is used to treat conditions like ADHD and we know that there are quite a few people using methamphetamine who have ADHD problems. Um, but what we're really focused on is harm reduction. We can't pretend that nobody's going to use methamphetamine just as with other drugs. You know, We can't pretend nobody's ever going to consume alcohol. Um, or that nobody's ever going to use cannabis or other drugs. The reality is that people do use drugs and what we want to do is reduce the harm from that. One of the other things talked about in the report is decriminalisation. Do you feel like that's really realistic? The government's already rolled it out with cannabis, for example. Is that something that could ever be a possibility? It, it doesn't seem like it's something they'd put political capital into. Um, the government's ruled out legalisation of cannabis. Decriminalisation is something different and we do have a form of it here in New Zealand already. Um, but the issue with it is that it is very much at the discretion of the police. So the police um, can decide whether or not they should prosecute you for possession of 
small quantities of any illegal drug. And at the moment, that discretion is applied uh, very um, unfairly. So different parts of the country, it's done differently. It also depends on what kind of drug you're found with. And all of the prejudices and biases that we see already in policing happen as well with the application of discretion. So Māori are much less likely to benefit, but um, nice, educated, middle-class people like you and me are very unlikely to be prosecuted. Is it frustrating that the government doesn't have some political courage in areas like this when you've got evidence that shows these things work? Um, it can be a bit frustrating, but the government has talked a lot about taking a health-based approach. And we know that the majority of people support a health-based approach. In a recent uh, Drug Foundation poll, 68% of people said that they wanted a repeal of the current Misuse of Drugs Act and a replacement with a health-based approach. So there's definitely a reasonable degree of consensus around that. And what we're really trying to do in our report, which we've launched today, <laughs> is um, provide uh, some ideas on, on what that means and what a health-based approach looks like for methamphetamine. Because one thing that you can draw evidence from is the trial that's taking place in Northland at the moment, Tiara Oranga, and that looks at our different shifting paradigm like you yeah. talked about before. What can we learn from that that you would like to see more widely across New Zealand? Uh, so we'd like to see the whole Te Ara Oranga program rolled out across the country. It's been incredibly successful. Um, the evaluation shows that for every dollar that's been invested, it's returning about three to seven dollars worth of benefits, which is a much higher um, benefit ratio than, for example, many of our roading projects. And um, the thing that's been special about uh, Te Ara Oranga is it's been a partnership between police and the DHB and the community service providers and NGOs. And as soon as police are aware of anybody who's using methamphetamine, whether they think they have a problem with addiction or not, they're referring them through to the health system and they're not putting them into the criminal justice system. And then they've also had enough capacity within the health system to be able to almost immediately offer those people um, support and treatment. And it's been immensely successful across a range of measures. Uh, the government is extending it to the Bay of Plenty, but we really think it should just be rolled out to the whole country. It's not particularly expensive. Um, 40 to $45 million would see it in every part of the country. And that would give enough uh, wraparound facilities to yeah. do that across yeah. New Zealand. Yeah. We can look at our overseas examples. If we look at places like Portugal that has arguably had quite a lot of success, there are other examples like Oregon where we'd have to learn, take some lessons because it hasn't worked. In fact, it's done the opposite. What do you take away from what happened in Oregon and apply it to here so we don't repeat some of those same mistakes? Um, I think Oregon um, has some particular issues and while they've changed the law, they haven't really done anything else to support people. Um, Oregon doesn't, for example, have safe consumption spaces. They're very, very, very few services. They have a very large homeless population. It's a very different context. Um, and I think the main problem there is that they've only focused on the law and not really done very much else. Do you think we need to take that as a bit of a warning, that we have to do all of the other stuff as well? Absolutely. Um, there's no way you can just change the law in the space and everything will sort itself out. Um, people who use drugs need various kinds of treatment and support, and we definitely haven't invested enough in that in New Zealand. We have some great treatment options, um, but unfortunately only about half the people who would like to access treatment are able to get it, um, and often if they are offered a spot, they don't get it immediately. And it is really important to offer people support when they want it, not kind of when a, when a slot opens up.
One of the things um, that was noted in the report that in 2009 um, some of the changes that John Key made were viewed as, as quite favourable. That seems to have changed um, the language around that. Do you think that what was happening then worked and now we've obviously moved on or, or what's the thinking about that sort of change on that? Um, so the various meth action plans that have, we've had over the last two decades have primarily focused on reducing supply and that just doesn't work. You know, you kind of read news reports of the police making enormous busts and, you know, finding, you know, 500 kilograms or something of methamphetamine. And you see very little impact on consumption after that. Um, it's, you know, as long as there's demand, supply will be there. And we just, we just kind of rest our way out of this problem. Well, look, that's a nice place to leave it. Thank you so much for coming in and being with us today and really appreciate your insight into that very interesting report. So if you want to get in touch with us this morning, please do. Our main platforms are email, Twitter or Facebook. Coming up, it seems like strikes and industrial action is everywhere right now. So is this a blast from the past? Welcome back. If you're disabled in New Zealand, you're much more likely to be on the wrong end of some troubling social statistics. Disabled people are more likely to be unemployed, more likely to be living in poverty, and more likely to die young. So will a new ministry help change that? On Friday, I sat down with Paula Tesorero, the chief executive of FAIKAHA, the Ministry of Disabled People. I started by asking her what her first priority would be. I think that I would be taking that guidance from the community, but one of the things that I have often talked about in relation to disability are our attitudes around disability and towards disabled people. And I think if the underlying attitudes can change, then that in of itself will actually really start to reduce those barriers over time. What is the attitude, do you think? Is it a negative attitude, is that what you mean? I think that attitude is often around a lack of awareness. So often in my work, now spanning a number of years in the disability community, it's often been that real lack of awareness and sometimes actually it can be at that more sharp end of stigma and discrimination and those are the things that really need to change. Do you mean specifically in workplaces? Would you like workplaces to be more open to the disabled community? I think it's a, a societal attitudinal issue that I'm more talking about and, and that's existed uh, over a number of years. It's, it's evolved and in part it's improved but I've often thought that in addition to really trying to shift policy levers and service delivery levers and, and other, you know, affecting other big changes really if we can affect that underlying attitude around disability that we would really move forward. I mean that's a pretty big ask coming in as, a, as the chief executive of a new ministry and saying I want to change people's attitudes and perceptions. Is that something that you feel like you can do and achieve? I'm really clear as the chief executive of FAIKAHA that we'll be working in partnership with the community and you know, changing attitudes takes quite a lot of time and there are a number of things that I want to be working on in partnership 
with the community uh, in the coming years. And one of the roles that Faikaha has is to steward change across government. And part of that will be around raising awareness of disability so that it's really prevalent across the public service and that people are really thinking about disability. But it's well beyond the public service too. We hope that in time, Faikaha will really be influencing the way that New Zealand thinks about disability and supports the needs of disabled people and really breaks down those barriers because at the end of the day, people are disabled not by virtue of their individual impairment, but actually by the barriers that exist in society and that's what we need to change. Do you feel like government is open to hearing that message and making changes, which is what you really want from them? I think the fact that the government has established Faikaha and given it a real mandate around transforming the way that disability support services are provided and given us a mandate around stewarding change across government agencies means that they really are open to looking at ways of removing barriers and the government has also introduced the proposed accessibility legislation which is the start of a conversation about removing some of those barriers. Because one of the concerns you had when you were in your role in the past was that the government really didn't have disabled people at the centre of its COVID-19 strategy. Do you feel like they heard your voice when you raised those concerns with them? I do think that the concerns around COVID at the time were taken into account and some programs of work were put in place to address those concerns. And one of the things that Faikaha will have a responsibility for is to be working with other agencies. You know, it won't be Faikaha that's delivering housing changes or education changes. For example, they still sit with other public service agencies, but it is about working with those agencies and forming close relationships and really trying to affect that change across. Because how do you stop it being a box-ticking exercise for those ministries? I mean, we've seen this example even with the concerns about mask use that have been raised with the government looking at trying to reduce some of the mandates around when we need to wear masks and some in the disabled community coming forward and saying, that makes us feel really nervous. They feel like they were only given 24 hours notice. So how do you consult with the sector widely and make meaningful suggestions when people are asking for feedback. It is really important that engagement with disabled people is really genuine and authentic. And one of the things that we are really clear about at Faikaha is that you know, we continue to support the community's focus on encouraging people to wear masks because masks continue to be a really great tool in our protective toolkit against COVID and that's particularly the case for disabled people and people with compromised immune systems. So we absolutely support the call from the community to really encourage people to wear masks. So will you be advocating the Prime Minister and the government to slow down those changes? 
So Faikaha has a responsibility to steward change across government. That will take time. Certainly we will be advising other agencies about the impact of any type of policy change, uh, what that impact will be on disabled people. But do you feel like perhaps when, I understand that you're a very new ministry at the moment, but is this the type of thing that you feel like you could have more of a voice with, with the government and affecting change perhaps in a more tangible way down the track? It's most certainly the hope that once we've really built the organisation, because there's still a lot of systems and processes and recruitment and all of those things that need to happen to actually really build Faikaha to be a strong organisation. And as we grow that capacity and capability, I'm hopeful that we will then be in that position to really start to drive that change across government and also to deliver on one of the critical changes which is to transform the way that disabled people receive supports. Because on that building up the ministry, at the moment a lot of the staff have come from the Ministry of Health. Do you feel like the staff at the ministry represent the disabled community effectively? Do you have enough people who are disabled working for the ministry? And is that important? It's really, really important that we provide opportunities for leadership and employment opportunities within Faikaha for disabled people. And that is something that we'll be turning our minds to as we develop our recruitment strategies. And Do you have a number in mind for that, like a percentage you'd like to get to? I don't have a percentage in my mind at this stage. But I am absolutely determined as the Chief Executive of Faikaha that we really do provide those opportunities for disabled people. And the staff who work at Faikaha now that have come from essentially two different organisations, they are absolutely committed to improving outcomes for disabled people. And part of that is as we fill vacancies, as we recruit to new roles, that we are really thinking about opportunities for disabled people. Because one of the statistics that I found really interesting, especially when we've got such a labour shortage at the moment, is that when it comes to employment, the employment rate for disabled people aged 15 to 64 is 7.9% compared to 3.3% for non-disabled people. So is that something that concerns you and, and you'll be actively trying to change? Oh, Absolutely, employment opportunities for disabled people is something that um, you know, Faikaha would hope in time to be able to work with other organisations like MB, like MSD, uh, others who hold those responsibilities um, and responsibilities for the disability employment strategy and implementing the New Zealand disability strategy which has some employment um, goals in it and so definitely we want to bring the expertise of Faikaha to those agencies because employment is one of the areas for disabled people uh, that you know, they are very clear about um, wanting to change. 
Because another thing that came to my attention when preparing for this interview was this idea of universal design. So you build a new house and it can very easily be tweaked to become accessible for people. Do you think strategies like that, you need to use your voice as the chief executive of a new ministry to be able to say, why aren't we doing this for new state homes, for example? Is that something you care about passionately? We'll be working really hard at Faikaha to influence key policy areas, and housing would be one of them, that have a real impact on the lives of disabled people. At the end of the day, as the Chief Executive, I'll be working really closely with our Minister, and also we have a mandate to work in partnership with the disability community. And so we'll be wanting to work together uh, in a, that relationship to determine what those policy priorities are that we're trying to influence across government. You've been in this field for a long time, but this is obviously something brand new. Do you feel the weight of the community behind you when starting this new role? Do you feel that pressure? When my appointment was announced, I received many hundreds of really supportive messages and that was wonderful to come into the role with but I'm under no illusion that there are really big expectations on Faikaha and so for me really as the chief executive it's about listening, it's about building the capability and the capacity within Faikaha as an organisation. It's about building our partnership relationship with the community. It's about establishing our role and our place within the public service and growing that awareness. Now those things won't all happen overnight. They're going to take a bit of time. But what will be important is communicating often and regularly with the community to make sure that people are feeling engaged and and are feeling on board. But I absolutely feel the weight of expectation uh, on me, but I'm part of a team. I have a team and there are other chief executives within the public service that I'll be wanting to work really closely with. That's Paula Tesserero there, the new chief executive of Faikaha. Coming up, mill workers, firefighters, midwives, lab workers, casino staff and those working in an egg factory. What do they all have in common? Stay tuned to find out. Kawaro is a one industry town, so it's really feeling the pressure of the strike and lockout of workers at its toilet paper factory. Another example, firefighters. They've agreed to mediation, a temporary halt, to their historic strike action. Those are two situations in a much bigger picture of industrial action. So why now? And does the past hold any lessons? We're joined in the Wellington studio by Victoria University history professor Jim McAllen Morena, and thank you so much for being with us this morning. Kia ora, Jessica. Thanks for having me. I want to start off by asking you, why are we seeing so much strike action at the moment? I think it's a combination of things. Uh, it's partly a, a, a jump in inflation. It's partly relatively low unemployment. I think also it's the stress of the last few years. A lot of workers have had quite a difficult time during COVID and indeed before that. And I think the, the feeling might be, well, if we don't improve things now, then when do we improve them?
And are you talking there about people like nurses, like firefighters, for example, who have been doing it really tough over COVID, perhaps going above and beyond? Are they the ones that are, are really crying out for a bit of reward and a bit of recognition? Well, certainly they're very good examples, and those are occupations too, which are very high stress, um, physically and and emotionally demanding, uh, and where there's where where the pay rates are not that great, particularly for fire service workers, and perhaps there's an expectation too that a government that, that professes to be committed to public services uh, should be delivering for them. So but how also much of workers it? Workers at it. Sorry, you keep going. Sorry, you keep workers, going. At, workers at workers at Carbono too in the private sector, manufacturing had to step up during COVID as well, and they're a good example. Yeah. How much of it do you think has got to do with the fact that it is a Labour government with a lot of big promises pre-election? That's part of it, but I think the conjunction of inflation uh, and uh, significant concern about inequality and a long period of relatively low wage increases too are all part of it. I think perhaps the key thing is the, the uh, relatively low unemployment, and I think that would prompt this sort of examination of things regardless of which government was in power. And is it the low unemployment plus inflation and we've got a bit of a perfect storm in terms of our economic situation? Yes, plus I think the, the, the difficulties that a lot of people have had during COVID and as you said, stepping, stepping up, going above and beyond. And I think there's a feeling that it's now time for, uh, time for some, some payback. And it's not just New Zealand either. We're seeing very similar things in the United Kingdom, for instance. For New Zealand, though, how does it compare to other times when we've had that intense industrial action? Where does that rate? I think uh, the last 30 years have been a little bit unusual. Uh, we've had the, the odd spike, 2019 was a spike, there was a bit of a spike around 2012, but from the early 1990s the Employment Contracts Act uh, really weakened the trade union movement and there was a very nasty recession during that period as well. I think for unions there was sort of cautious rebuilding in the first decade of the 20th century. Then came the global financial crisis and uh, again through the 2010s unemployment didn't go below 5% for quite a long time. Wage growth wasn't that great. So in terms of the last 30 years, it's a bit unusual. Uh, but in the longer term, you, you have ups and downs. You have spikes and um, and periods of relative calm. I think really, too, what is it, what will be interesting will be how things look in another year. Why do you say that? Well, just just because uh, this this is one particular year, and it's hard to say on the basis of one year whether whether it, it's a, a new experience or perhaps something a little bit unusual. I'm in also interested in your thoughts on the generational issue: whether people who are coming through the workforce now have a slightly different attitude to unions and to striking, and and what your take is on that. Well, certainly unions are much less part of the fabric of uh, workplace and society than was the case until the 1980s. That doesn't mean they're absent, and in fact in the last 20 years I think we've seen really innovative ways of unions organising, particularly the um, cross-occupation uh, cross um, unions like Unite, like FIRST, uh, we've seen it too um, combine a lot of uh, older unions into one. So the union movement certainly hasn't gone away, I think it's, it's rebuilt after the very difficult period of the 1990s. But still um, unions are less um, part of the fabric I think for many workers, especially younger ones. 
In terms of expectations of employment and employers, um, I think workers have always had, had a reasonable expectation that their rights will be uh, respected, particularly with reference to health and safety. I think what we have now is a, a, a different ways of, of addressing grievances. It's much more the personal grievance route rather than through the through the union or, or, or that sort of thing. So it's different, but um, it's also the same. You mentioned this is a bit of a global phenomena, if you like, with, with other countries facing this as well. And is it because of the economic global situation? Well, I think, again, it's, it's a similar sort of uh, set of circumstances as we have in New Zealand. Um, the COVID was a huge shock coming at, uh, at the end of a period of difficulty. Um, everybody rallied round then. Um, essential workers were, were told uh, how important they were. And perhaps there's a feeling among many workers here, Britain, elsewhere, that, well, um, if that's to be more than just rhetoric, um, then a bit of reward would be, would be expected, uh, especially after a decade in which um, wage growth was low in which public policies often emphasised austerity, uh, much more in Britain than here I might say, particularly also as, as concern about wealth inequality continues to grow with that real inequality becoming observable. So it's all sorts of things and, and perhaps it's, a, it's, it's a, a generational shift as well. Uh, 30 years is a long time. Perhaps it's yeah one of those uh, changes in, in the fabric which become quite 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 encompassing. We've certainly been doing a lot of news stories over the last little while on strike action. Thank you very much for your insight this morning. I really appreciate it. That's the Victoria University professor Jim McAloon there. So stick around Q&A and we will be back after the break. That's Q&A for this week. Tēnā koutou e honomai ki Q&A. Kia pai te rata, ratapu. Have a good Sunday. From the Q&A team, thank you for watching. Jack Tame will be back next week, Sunday at 9am, with the first of three mural debates from our biggest cities. We'll see you then. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.